0: Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Folkham.
4: Hi, Talking Biotechers. This is Vern Blazek, taking care of the uh, booth announcer duties at the Talking Biotech podcast. Today, part one, you'll hear the rest of the interview with Professor Ronald Herring. So, this is a continuation of last week's lengthy interview as it began to spill over into a separate episode. Calvin Synapathy leads this interview debunking the myths of Indian farmer suicides. Dr. Herring, he's a social scientist. He's examined the phenomenon of Indian farmer suicides very carefully and illuminates this topic with first-hand understanding that really helps all of us become much more conversant in this important topic. In part two of today's show, doctor Kevin Fultha will answer your questions as they appeared on his public figure Facebook page. But first, we pick up the second half of the discussion with Professor Ronald Herring. Here he starts the conversation with Coven and Kevin as they discuss the influence of Andana Shiva. We now return to last week's talking biotech podcast, already in progress. I
3: once wrote a piece uh, discussing why I think, especially as as an Indian woman, and, and I also consider myself a feminist, how she has uh, essentially uh, succeeded at appropriating her own culture and uh, got some got some backlash about that. Um, about how I should talk about the science and, and not accuse her of something as, as bad as
2: cultural appropriation. I completely understand what you're saying, and it's uh, but I don't think we have anything specifically about. But it, it would be a great a great article to write. I guess you've seen right. um, Michael Specter's piece in the New Yorker.
3: I did. I, I wrote an article um, essentially talking about uh, about how she she uh, has appropriated her own culture or Indian culture. I'd, so, be really uh,
2: inter- I'd be really interested to see that because everybody yeah. asks me this question and I I don't have a good answer except that in most spheres uh, there are these kind of, of cultural brokers or what I call epistemic brokers. That is Vandana Shiva tells us that people are committing suicide, and it, it becomes part of a global network transferred through these transnational advocacy networks, and it becomes it gets picked up by media all over the world. So this is, in fact, the reason we were in Barangal was asking questions about this report that the, the sheep were dying of the Cry 1 AC. They ate the leaves of BT cotton, and then they died. And so there was this this international uproar about the dead sheep. So we went to find out what was going on with these dead sheep. And, uh, of course, it it turned out to be a hoax. The body disappeared. The autopsy results disappeared. Nobody could find the shepherds that had the dead sheep. I mean, it it was one of these these mythologies that became an international myth. Um, But these things do crop up in almost all fields. So we have people who deny the landing on the moon. We have people who think that the Israelis caused 9-11. There's a a tremendous amount of this kind of myth and rumor-making in the international social sphere. And, of course, it's become worse with the Internet because we have these cocoons, these information cocoons. And once you're in a network that has the cocoon, you don't hear the other side of stories. So those people listening to Kevin's podcast... May well be in an information cocoon in which they hear my take, uh, but not Vandana Shiva's take. So I, I think, and I think that has segregated all of us into networks that make a common understanding of the world very, very difficult.
1: You know, if I could chime in on that, it's it's rather it's something that, as a scientist, um, to my scientific training has taught me to do everything I can to avoid that kind of bias. And um, I've opened up the podcast and said repeatedly if you have a point of view that's different, I don't want this to be an echo chamber or um, or a, a, you know, whatever. Uh, and, you know, Vandana Shiva, she would be more than welcome to discuss and, and try to convince me. You know, I mean, show me why I'm wrong. Um, this week I even had a brief dialogue with Carrie Gillum, which, you know, she agreed that she could come on. Um, I think it would be a really nice discussion, and I'm not here to win win points by taking people down and being difficult. Um, I'd like to understand why they tick the way they do, and um, maybe try to help them understand the way that I think. Because I do think a lot of these folks are, and I don't know with Shiva, but w- with most people, um, are genuinely good people who don't understand. And others are in it for making a buck and causing trouble.
2: Uh, yeah, I, I, I both agree and disagree, Kevin. I think that at the top of transnational advocacy networks, these epistemic brokers, these cultural brokers, um, I think they do know. Um, everybody always asks me, can Vanda Nishiva really believe the things she's saying, that that farmers don't have any idea that the seeds they're growing are going to kill them? That How, how can she think that she romanticizes farmers, and then she says that they're, all completely uh, bamboozled by these multinational corporations promising miracle seeds and then killing them. How can how can both things be true? And I, I honestly think that she knows what's going on. I honestly believe this, and one reason for that is that these stealth seeds that I talked about. Um, she made a big deal out of why did the government suppress. Navbarat 151, that's the illegal seeds being sold. Why did the government suppress the illegal seeds, which were indigenous and made by the people, produced by a small Indian firm, and then certify the Monsanto Mahiko seeds produced by a multinational corporation? We don't need biotechnology, she said. We could have Navbarat 151, which is also bollworm resistant. And she knew absolutely, certainly, that the stealth seeds were there, they were produced by local farmers, they were back-crossing the transgene into their local varieties, all of which indicated these are not suicide seeds, there's no terminator technology, and she kept saying that for the next 15 years. So, I mean, it's clear that she knew that that there was no terminator gene in this, and she didn't know, unfortunately. She never figured out that... uh, the Monsanto gene was what was producing uh, these good results in Gujarat cotton.
3: Yeah, you know, I, I think that's a good lead into my next question because you mentioned the people at the top, such as such as Shiva, and I think I think that the people at the top um, they're sort of fundamentalist leaders, and they're largely disingenuous, but their their messaging uh, and their myth making kind of trickles down uh, to the general population, and that's where we get the people. I think that kevin says are they're 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 good people with with good intentions they just want to take care of their families and they and they believe a lot of this so i mean so when westerners um you know that this general public not the people at the top of this food chain when they either march against monsanto or uh, or lobby or make their voices heard against genetic engineering uh to supposedly help save indian farmers I think that they they largely believe that they're truly helping um so is there any maybe even uh unknown or these people don't even know that there's a white savior complex going on with with this gmo as whipping boy story
1: you know, I,
2: I I'm reluctant, probably because I'm white. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm reluctant to call it a white savior complex uh, because some of the people that make the most money off this turn out to be um, from countries that are not part of the U.S. European uh, cabal. Um, I, so I I I wouldn't I don't think white savior complex. I do think that it's part of this this kind of development mythology, that uh, some of us know what's best for development of other people, and we will provide the experts, we'll fly in a team, in three weeks the team will understand whatever country it is and say, well, it worked in Mozambique, of course it'll work here. You know, there's a, there, I think there is a kind of dismissal of local knowledge and dismissal of, of the, the historical specificity and the cultural, political specificity in particular places with a kind of, of overweening uh, technocratic dialogue about we're going to tell the rest of the world how to be rich like us. I do think that's out there. I think it's, it's sort of suppressed from the way it was 20 years ago when the Harvard Development Advisory Group was running Pakistan back in the 60s and 70s. I think that's less the case now, but I wouldn't call it quite, quite savior complex. I do agree that as you go down these chains of epistemic brokers cultural brokers down to people at the local level absolutely they believe they they are honest they are honest people with good values talk to a lot of them and they honestly believe farmers are at risk and they're at risk because of these terrible things that are being done to them by a multinational corporation and since multinational corporations have a pretty bad record uh, for doing things against the welfare of local people as well as against the welfare of people in their home countries, uh, it, it's, not a hard, it's not a hard story to believe. And so if you're an idealistic young person coming out of a rural college, one of the first things you might want to do is join these Save the Farmers type movements. If you, know, if you ask why are there more suicides reporting in Andhra Pradesh and Maharashtra, I would say I've never seen this done, but my guess is that if you did an analysis of NGOs per capita or NGOs per farmer in those two states, certainly in Andhra, certainly in Andhra, I think you would you would find that it's among the highest in India and India is among the highest in the world. So the reporting of suicide is very much tied to the strength of these networks that use the suicides as a means of legitimating their own position on biotechnology. Uh, So I I believe that's true, but I don't know for sure it's true. It's also true that Andhra Pradesh, because of the early suicides there in 1998, instituted the bounty, the ex gratia payment of one lakh of rupees, that every family with a farmer suicide would get 100,000 rupees, which is a lot of money for a farm family in 1998. The government immediately withdrew it because they found out that there were fake suicides, reports of suicides that weren't real, perhaps even some murders that were disguised as suicides. Now, the next government, though, said, well, the previous government has, has dissed the poor farmers. We're going to double the gratia payment and we'll make it retroactive to 1998. So in the early 2000s, the, there was an increase in the suicide rate of farmers uh, in Andhra Pradesh. I'm not so sure it wasn't a response to the fact that every time you reported a suicide, you would get two lakhs of rupees. Uh, And so I think there were some incentives built in and that had to do with the density of NGOs on the ground and their political power to pressure the government uh, in certain directions and not others.
3: Wow, just from a common sense perspective, from me, not an expert, the idea of of rewarding, I I wouldn't call it rewarding suicides, but I guess it is rewarding suicides, doesn't seem like the best idea.
1: <laughs> you no, know,
2: this this, uh, this paper I mentioned by uh, Shamika Ravi uh, on the, from the Brookings um, from Brookings is um, it's it's really pretty interesting in talking about the contagion effect, and she argues that there's a lot of social psychology literature out there that says that that suicides can create contagion effects. And, for example, you have clusters of student suicides, and they're often timed around exams and such things. But there are clusters of suicide. Just as in the United States, we worry about the contagion effect of these, these uh, mass killings that we have so frequently in our, in our own country. Um, so if, there's, if there are contagion effects, the worst thing you can do is have the prime minister fly into the village where someone committed suicide or to produce... Uh, these ex gratia payments of two lakhs of rupees, that's what People Live*, the movie, uh, was making fun of. Um, I mean, it was, it was a, tra- a tragic thing to make fun of, but it was, what do you expect? Uh, you provide this kind of incentive, and people are either going to claim a suicide that's not real, or someone may even commit suicide to save their family. This, of course, is the death of the salesman uh, in the United States which the the suicide is done because the salesman can no longer take care of his family so he commits suicide to collect on the insurance. So this this is not an uncommon theme, it's not a particularly Indian theme, but it is the wrong way to proceed, just as I think the blaming of everything on debt is the wrong way to proceed. It seems to be that mental health and physical health are much more critical that more people commit suicide with either mental health problems diagnosed or undiagnosed or serious physical disabilities that they can't either they can't cure or they can't pay for the cure of. Um, And those kinds of people in deep distress are more likely to commit suicide than someone who simply is running out of money. So there's no doubt that money lenders are uh, bloodsuckers uh, in, in rural India? They charge high rates of interest. They harass people. There's no question that they they are a, a, a pest for farmers. Uh, but at the same time, farmers have been experiencing that for many generations, and they don't commit suicide every time they have an unpayable debt.
1: Along the same line, you know, it's really an opportunity. Uh, it's a wonderful opportunity to talk to someone who's a scholar like you about this topic you studied. And could you help us who are confronted with this question all the time? Like people will say, well, what about the Indian suicides? Can you give us like a really good elevator level answer to people who say that the, that the Indian suicides are a legitimate problem? How do I respond yeah. in a terse way?
2: Uh, I mean, you, the short answer is that there's, there's tons of, of, uh, of peer-reviewed literature, careful studies, meta-analyses of lots of these studies. That's very clear. Most people don't want to read that. So what I would tell people is that uh, farmers in India have been changing BT, it's co- uh, been changing cotton hybrids for a long time. They know what works in their fields. They, they their life depends on careful analysis of what's working in their fields, and virtually all of them who grow cotton grow BT cotton. So this universal adoption uh, should be a very strong indication that people are not buying a seed that will kill them because it's killing their neighbors. And secondly, I would tell people to ask the question, why do farmers take risk growing illegal seeds? And they do. Um, farmers take risk growing illegal seeds, not just in India, but in China and Vietnam and all of South America. They take these risks to grow illegal seeds because the returns are very high. So those two things, right? They, they wouldn't be growing these seeds um, unless they thought they Produced good results for them and their farmers, for them and their farmer friends and neighbors, uh, and they wouldn't be taking risks to grow illegal seeds unless this particular transgene, particular trait, um, produced good results in the field. Now, I mean, that was much
1: too long, and I'm deeply sorry about that. Well, it's a really long; it's a very high building with a long elevator.
2: <laughs> it's a long elevator. It's no, but thirteenth
1: floor. Okay. But, but, I, but that's great. So, it's a good distillation, might be, because the incentives to grow this are so good. That, that everybody's doing it and then at the same time if it was causing suicide you wouldn't do it and people are adopting it which reinforces both of those perspectives
2: i think that's right the adoption curve is very steep and i do not believe that you can fool farmers year after year after year by the millions uh by telling them that something that's not working is working i just do not believe that that farmers work in that world of make-believe they can't afford magical thinking they use BT cotton because it improves insect control and the insect in question can destroy their whole crop. So this is this is very straightforward. It's very simple. The brouhaha made about the fact that it's a GMO uh, is really pretty bizarre when you think about it. And most farmers, of course, don't think about it that way.
3: I'll keep an eye out next time I'm in India for all of these, these dead bodies that should be everywhere <laughs> based on based on the idea of, of the epidemic of farmer suicides and and uh, you know at a very high level if you want to say that in an elevator speech uh, yeah I mean where where are all these dead bodies
2: oh I wouldn't ask a question like that because Vanda will give you all these very precise numbers she loves numbers they're always <laughs> they're always in multiples of 10,000 there's some kind are of there's some kind of numerology in effect here, but she always bumps everything by 10,000. When an American huckster would say 4,215, she'll just say 4,000, 8,000, you know, 18,000, 36,000. Anyway, it's it's kind of an odd numerology if you follow her statements over the years. Interesting. Um, what do you think is the future of G.E. Cotton in India? You know, I, I think that the... Um, what farmers want uh, is an extension of this technology to other crops. But within the cotton sector, um, what they would like is control of other pests. Um, saving them from the bollworm has made an enormous difference in both their bottom line and their health, because they're not spraying nearly as many neurotoxins in their fields. Um but uh these sucking pests, the therps and jacids and little diptera, all these kind of sucking pests, they are now an increasing problem because once you stop generic spraying of pesticides, the, the other pests are of course going to increase. So um that's a big issue now, and there are both biotech solutions to this and there are traditional breeding uh results. So I've seen some I've seen some fields that look really interesting by changing the morphology of the leaf so that the little sucking pest can't get their proboscis all the way into the tissue and so by changing the leaf morphology you may be able to control uh, this either through biotech advances or through traditional breeding advances so I think the battle in cotton will continue just as it has always been with crops it's an arms race against the things that want to eat your crop and the farmer who wants to protect a crop so that, that I think that battle will continue uh, the public sector scientists in India, of course, very very discouraged because of the uh, the rejection of BT Brinjal, which is the same transgene, same effect. Uh, farmers I've talked to would prefer to have BT Brinjal or, or BT Bindi, uh, um, ladies' fingers. What do we call okra? Okay. BT okra. They would love to have this because of the amount of spraying they're doing. Um, So there's a kind of, at the national level, there's a certain amount of hostility and suspicion to biotech. And the biotech public sector scientists are quite discouraged as well. Uh, If if you were going to invest in new technology, you might not want to go to India. You'd probably go to some other country. Um, And then now, under the new government, the Minister of Agriculture uh, seems to be, um, he seems to have preferences for, different kinds of technology, since farmers should actually uh, pray for their crops, uh, and by this Rajyog technique, the, in, you can infuse your crops, the Shakti, with power um, that allows them to resist global warming and pests and everything else, so you don't need biotechnology if you have Rajyog. Um, so this is a little unsettling, too, that there's no strong agriculture minister pushing for agricultural uh, biotechnology. And, and the final thing I'd say about the, um, um, the regulatory structure, I mean, what's critical about biotech that people often miss is how do you structure state science, right? So uh, B.T. Brinjal was rejected because the Minister of Environment ru- ruled on grounds of food safety that there's too much risk to B.T. Brinjal. So you have a Minister of Environment ruling on food safety. Uh, The Minister of Agriculture supported um, B.T. Brinjel, the prime minister, did. But the Minister of Environment had a veto power. So there's a battle over state science going on. There's a new biotech regulatory authority, which would be broader than the Ministry of Environment. But it's unclear how that will be constituted. So if science wins this battle in in creating a biotech regulatory authority that is science-based, then the future could be much better than it looks right now. If not, I think stealth seeds will still multiply. Uh, these seeds move all around the world. You can't stop germplasm. It's true that something like uh, you can't do F2s of hybrid maize, but people do use F2s of, of uh, BT cotton. So you can replicate um, germplasm in different countries. It's easy to move across borders. And the, the only problem for Indian farmers is that they will always be behind the curve. They will never be... At the frontiers, because they'll only be using technologies that are already available, like the uh, the Flex BT, which is already uh, available. It's being sold as fast as it can be produced. Uh, farmers tell me, um, but that's always a step behind, and India's not being autonomous in developing their own biotech. Um, and that's that's sort of the the outcome of this strong uh, uncertainty created by the regulatory structure within India.
3: Thank you for joining us, uh, Professor Herring. And if, if people want to know more about this issue of, of Indian farmer suicide and and BT cotton, where can they find out? And are you on social media? Where can people find you?
2: The easiest way to to, to see the um, links to work that I find valuable uh, is from my website. Um, and that's easy to find on, on cornell.edu. Um And so if you just Google my name, you'd see that the things that in the references to the papers that are there, see the kind of things that I have found useful. And I'm always available uh, on email. I answer questions all the time, email and telephone. It's rjh5 at cornell.edu, but it's easy to find on the web. I'm sorry, we're doing a MOOC. We're doing a MOOC in September on the edX platform, Um, the science and politics of the GMO. So that's something people could tune into. So I'm I'm happy to talk to um, to groups large and small, and to um, uh, make available various kinds of documents that I've read that I find useful. But I think that's I don't post things on. Uh, social media and so on it just it just created too many enemies and too many hassles as Kevin must know better than anyone
1: well you know en- enemies are just friends who don't know it yet <laughs> if you're telling the truth and uh, being forthright eventually they'll come around I'm, maybe I'm just too much of an optimist but we'll see I'm how just that gonna goes.
2: say that, that defines the far end of the continuum for optimism
1: <laughs> well I, I like to think that uh, that with facts and with evidence we can sort out any problem and it's just a question of um us communicating that to them more clearly, and uh, you know it'll it'll probably be on my tombstone someday. But <laughs> oh well, what are we going to do, right?
2: In contrast, Kevin, to your optimism, uh, one of the, the discussions we have in this university course there are only a dozen university courses at Cornell, and this is one of them. It's called the GMO debate, and one of the things that I disagree with the scientist about is the position you just expressed um, assumes away one of the most important one of the most important variables in this whole debate which is that there are huge limits to science science can never tell you that there won't be a black swan right so this kind of unknown unknowns uh, and science will never tell you what's an appropriate risk preference so some people construct uncertainty as risk and once you decide something is risky then that that kind of, of personal, position on it is not going to be dislodged by showing you more peer-reviewed articles. I think there's tremendous evidence for this that no matter how many peer-reviewed articles you stack up against Seralini, lots of people say, well, there are doubts. We have doubts. We're not certain. Science can't tell us everything. Then there are these kind of ethical and religious objections um, that are beyond facticity. The, The facts themselves don't have any purchase on some people's positions on the natural and the unnatural, or playing God you know so these these kinds of objections to biotech are not going to be resolved by um by facts alone just just as uh we've seen in other kinds of disputes around the world um so that's just my my little caution that it's not just the science
1: okay (laughs) no no absolutely and and I'm not and I'm not so naive to uh, um not Be aware of the social overlays and certainly the uh, risk aversion. Um, I've spoken to a lot of people about this, and I I know that folks like you know Ntaleb have been really critical of any kind of discussion of these technologies. The difference for me, and this is just the way I swing, is that for me I can measure the deficiency today of twenty thousand people that will die because of malnutrition that maybe a substantial amount may be solvable, and so do we risk them versus a uh, versus the you know one in a billion chance that there could be some sort of large scale problem with the technology, and as somebody who you know who peers into the test tube and who runs the gels and who does the sequencing and the computational analysis, the risk to me is is so infinitesimal that I can't even fathom why we would take our known problems. And let those roll because of this far out risk, and I think down the road um, as as we become more comfortable with the technology that uh, that we will they look back at this as a very dark time in our history when we refuse to implement something that could have helped
2: no we're on the, we're on exactly the same page. I take exactly the same stance you do. Uh, I'm just saying that, you know, my my mother would not fly in airplanes because I said, well, the risk of driving 2,000 miles is much greater than flying in airplanes. She said, yeah, but an airplane can fall out of the air. (laughs) My mother, she's an educated person, but she just had a tremendous fear of flying, as does John Madden, this this kind of big, powerful football hero guy. He's always on the train because he's afraid of airplanes. So it's... um, I, th- I think that it's, it's difficult to make the statement you just made. It's one that I agree with. It's one that virtually all of my colleagues agree with here at Cornell. But it is still not the case that you're going to convince someone else that in, an infinitesimal risk uh, is, is infinitesimal. And, of course, one of our disasters is that golden rice promised for so long, cover of Time magazine in 2000 and so on and so forth. There have been so many setbacks at the breeding level Ingo always says that it's uh, the fault of the regulators and so on. But there are just all these – have been these problems and just the simple breeding – I don't know if you agree with this, Kevin, but as I see it, there have been a number of setbacks that uh, are breeding problems, not biotech problems. And uh, it's not just that there is opposition to golden rice. So Ingo used to have a clock on his website that said how many babies died today because you didn't take my golden rice – but it's, it's more complicated
1: than that, right? Sure, sure. It is more complicated. There uh, have been certainly questions about the amount of uh, vitamin or beta carotene in the original golden rice varieties, and also the question that the varieties that were carrying the transgenes were not necessarily those that were the best yielding for the places they were needed. And those are legitimate discussions. But in in my mind is that if it's, you don't think of it as... Uh, i 'll put the i 'll put the head on of the people who are the critics. Let your food be your medicine and here you, <laughs> here you have an opportunity you know if my vision's getting a little bit fuzzy i 'm going to go give give this rice a shot and even if it 's something that helps me uh through a few more weeks of having vision or helping my child survive an illness that was temporary because he was his vitamin A deficiency wasn't as severe, you know. To me, that means a lot, and uh, and so I'm, I think when we start making the broad generalizations about how this technology can't work or doesn't work, we forget about the few cases, even if it's one case that somebody's assisted by this. We need to do it, and it's uh. It, and again, it's just my weird wiring, and somebody who's uh-huh. an eternal optimist and somebody who worries about people. Uh, who can't? Yeah. Who who has a hard time thinking about? You know, when I sit down to eat, I mean, I finish everything on my plate because I don't want to waste anything because I know somebody somewhere doesn't have anything, and um, and so that it's just my odd wiring, and and that's why I take those kinds of positions.
2: No, I agree with you. There's there's one thing though that about the the anti biotech movement that has affected Golden Rice that's kind of interesting. Uh, evidently. The the problem now is the instability of expression of, um, of the beta carotene-producing gene. So it is it, it is a breeding problem, but the instability would not matter if one took your point of view. That is, I, I don't care if it's unstable, so I get a little bit too much beta carotene. My body's not going to make any more vitamin A. I'm not going to get vitamin A toxicity if there's too much. And if there's too little, I'm better off than if I didn't have any beta carotene, Right. So uh, that instability, though, makes biotech scientists back off and say, we better go back to the drawing board. So, I mean, that's, that's one of the ways in which this regulatory scheme that everything biotech lives in a separate category. We would never ask those questions of conventionally bred crops, right? So we ask those questions and it does delay uh, the development. Um, and, and again, if you're desperate, you'd much rather have the vitamin A uh, rice whether it's stable or unstable, as long as it survives the cooking pot, right? And it does.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and as somebody who's close to plant breeding, we understand that very few traits have great stability. Where we try to get stability in our traits, uh, right. but even even the flavors or sugars, the sugar you accumulate in your in your strawberry is affected by the nighttime temperature. And absolutely, so, absolutely. So there, yeah. so you know, all these things are are mushy. And, uh, you know, but I, I'd take a, I'll take a mushy solution. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: well, I wish, I wish golden rice would just get into the market. The one last thing about golden rice. Everybody, much of the biotech community has said, well, we need public sector, public sector, public sector. I, I've, I, I talked to a guy in the, in the private sector who said, look, if we had been doing golden rice, we wouldn't have started with so few varieties we would have started with a much broader spectrum of rice varieties uh, so that we'd have a better chance of a hit than what they did at Erie. So, it, and, and that's also, I mean, that's a commercial mentality that you're investing in something you want to make sure you get a hit out of it as opposed to a more public sector kind of response in which there's, there's kind of a soft budget constraint
1: you know, this is biology, and biology is frequently a mess, and you just have to just kind of roll with that, but then you start talking about risk again. Right, that's right.
3: Alright, well thank you very much for joining us today Professors Herring and Fulta.
2: It's been a pleasure talking to both of you today, I've really enjoyed it.
1: Yeah, I've been trying to um, find uh, time for Professor Herring for a long time. Um, I've enjoyed interacting with him at these meetings that really are built around biotech, where we get to have discussions about the best way to communicate these concepts. And this really multifaceted, complicated issue of Indian suicides always comes up.
3: Yeah, I mean, I'm sure we could have spent hours on this, and maybe some of the audience would have enjoyed that, but it's... uh, I mean, what I have taken away from this uh, more than anything is that it's far more complex than people imagine.
1: And that, and it makes sense. I mean, India is not a monolith by any means. And just uh, the people who I know from there. I mean, there's so many different regions and so many different histories and so many different ways of thinking that it's a. Uh, it makes that tapestry of that particular country even even. Deeper in terms of the, uh, the the easy way to think about it. I mean, it just it's not a simple solution. And to talk about uh, the, the issues in biotechnology and farming, it, it lends itself very well to misrepresentation and to misinterpretation.
3: Well, thank you, Kevin, for co-hosting today and for letting me host. Uh, and if you liked what you heard, please write a review on iTunes. Tell a friend. And share this all over all over the internet.
1: <laughs> yeah, do that. It's it's actually funny how well this is growing, and I think this particular episode is uh, kind of set up to get good response. Uh, so thank everybody. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. Thank you, Coven, for taking uh, taking the steering wheel on this one. It was wonderful to watch you do it from the uh, passenger seat. <laughs> <laughs> hi everybody this is kevin folta back on the talking biotech podcast with part two today where we'll answer your questions and this is a really popular segment that i just haven't done in a long time and uh last night put up a tweet that said if you have questions that i can help answer uh submit them to my public figure professional facebook page and uh a contradiction in terms so that's uh where i asked people to send their questions and i haven't looked ahead of time so that's kind of fun let me uh see if i can even find it here all right and we'll answer them in order how can we promote change at what we are supposed to be scientific institutes that are currently denying the safety sustainability of gmos here We have our state's major medical school and science museum both promoting anti-GMO views, and that's a really good question. I mean, first of all, let us know what the who those are, what state you're in. I dread to think it might be mine. (laughs) Um, It's really important for us to be able to identify examples of this, and I think that when you look at even places like the Cleveland Clinic that publish really, really poor information that is driven mostly by uh, activists who are uh, working through maybe a single person there uh, or a science museum, which may have uh, a person who's working in the PR end who's uh, selling what she thinks or what he thinks rather than what the science says. And um, really, really important. And so uh, let me know. Uh, Send me an email at kevinfolta at gmail.com, and we'll take a look at those things. And usually if we cast a little bit of light on this from the scientific side, uh, we have been able to at least be able to influence uh, at least a little bit more balance, if not uh, complete correction. The next question comes from Varun. And it says, should the technology ever become simplified enough, do you think that more good or harm will come from allowing people to use GM to create new crops at home, much like we can currently create hybrids with little or no regulation? And Varun, I'm not uh, sold on the idea, Um, and uh, it's not because I'm a gene jockey and that I need to somehow uh, maintain that, uh, that, that sphere of tools to my own devices. But it's really about safety. I mean, let's face it, you know, you could make something dangerous. Um, It's possible. And that's why every genetically engineered food is tested extensively, even though uh, there's no, even though there's no plausible reason for why it would be dangerous. So in other words, you place a gene into that plant, um, you don't know exactly where it will sit down. You don't know exactly um, how it'll change the genetic neighborhood uh, unless... You have very powerful tools and with today's omics technologies you can test to see if there is evidence of collateral change. Um, There are people who claim that just the introduction of the gene causes major problems. That's not what scientists say but the basic story is and this was reaffirmed recently by the National Academies of Science where they said It's important for us to begin to explore how we can use the best and most sensitive tools to evaluate crops one by one. That way we can be guaranteeing that we're providing a safe product for the food supply and maybe even an improved product. That's why things like this getting, like any technology, you know, you don't want to have a nuclear reactor in your backyard, Um, as nice as it would be, right? Okay, next question comes from Bella. Uh, what's the best thing to say to someone who denies the positive effects of GMOs? And I think what what really the best thing to do is to always lead with your values. So Bella, if if what's important to you what's important to your family? Um, for me, I always talk about the reason I went into science was because I wanted to uh, make a change in the world. I wanted to leave this rock better than I found it, and and um, that's working out great. And um, and I, I say that because I don't feel that I'm doing enough. Um, but the idea is, is that we can, uh, if you talk about what's important to you, for me it's about feeding hungry people um, in this nation and other places, having better nutrition for people here, helping people make better choices in their food. Uh, better choices in their diets, keeping farmers in business, um, worrying about ways that we can impact the environment less when we farm or when we generate any kind of, uh, when we generate food. Those are the things that are important to me. And so when I'm talking to someone who is against the technology, I'll say, well, this is what I'm all about here. So um, this technology allows me to expand And focus um, on those areas that are important to me. And I always talk about, I don't talk about Roundup Ready corn and BT cotton. You know, those don't move the needle for most people. Those are traits for farmers, not for consumers. So what I talk about are things like the uh, uh, peanuts that have been made that have less likelihood to cause allergic reactions. What a great technology to be able to use that we don't use. Um, things like uh, uh, the papaya is a great example where the papaya industry in Hawaii was saved by genetic engineering back in the 1990s right now you have the BT eggplant or the brinjal Um, this is uh, a great technology that's doing very good things in Bangladesh and uh, seeks to do more in India and the Philippines and I think next week we'll have Tony Shelton on to talk about uh, the BT brinjal and Dr. Herring mentioned it in the previous example too. So the way that you talk to people about it, start with your shared values. Start with the things that that really help them build trust with you as a speaker because you share similar values. And and they people don't know that they think this is creepy technology. They don't realize that it's just another way to genetically improve a plant. We're all on the same page and. Uh, we're all trying to do what's right and this is just one technology that we find very helpful in achieving a common goal. Uh, we can talk to Joshua Mark. What do you say to people who worry about GMO crops causing decreased biodiversity? And that's a great question and we talked about this uh, this week with actually an expert in my field who wrote a, uh, a a opinion piece about the strengths and weaknesses of GMOs or genetic engineering and um, said that this whole idea of monocultures is awful. And I said, hold on a minute. If you compare the genetic diversity in corn and soy and and cotton and a lot of the big uh, egg crops that are genetically engineered and compare that to horticultural crops, things like citrus, apples, bananas, uh, grapes, oh great example, um, strawberries, blueberries, uh, these are all extremely narrow. If you look at, uh, those are monocultures. Okay, this is where you, bananas are a great example. Grapes, um, there's just one kind everywhere or a very limited number kind of grapes. Um, apples, you know, the few varieties we have have been here forever. So these are really the, the places where I worry about a lack of genetic diversity in annual Uh, Crops or row crops where people are breeding and every year come out with new new varieties and new types uh, where farmers plant even on one farm multiple kinds of seed that may be um, yielding at different times. It's not as much of a problem as people like to infer. Um, Granted, there are more acres of them and if there was a problem, you would see wider spread devastation. You know, that would be faster. Um, But kind of gone in a year. Uh, I'm much more much more worried about narrowness in germplasm when we look at uh, tree crops and horticultural crops. The other thought too is that we are on the other side of the diversity bottleneck. That over the last, I don't know, 20 years, it's been more um, attractive and possible to be able to breed in genes from wild populations. And we've been using genomics tools and molecular markers. And if you don't know what those are, um, these are basically the way that we can follow a gene from generation to generation using PCR um, that or other methods, but, but principally PCR, that method where you can detect if a criminal was at a crime scene, if the, uh, if the, the, the hair at the scene matches the uh, guy who's in the jail cell. <laughs> Always good to check that. So we can use different techniques that don't cost a lot of money to be able to follow a gene from generation to generation. And that allows us to do quite a bit with um, with uh, accelerating breeding and, and opening uh, those genetic bottlenecks. Next one comes from Steven. Do you think GMO food will be more accepted by the general public in the future? And I, I think so, I think it is now. Um, the majority of people don't care I think you're looking at a very small vocal minority that uh, have been inspired by uh, by uh, a certain worldview that then is confirmed by people who are making a buck off of manufacturing risk, and uh, you know, I the people who call me a lying shill, you know, that I say that I get all my money from Monsanto, that I'm paid to lie about science. You hear it every day. Um, they're the ones who actually, if you look at it, are the ones who are financed by these industries. Um, some of the more vocal documentarians and uh, uh, folks who are uh, you know, doing the speaking circuit, uh, they all cash a check at the end of the day and if they can scare that audience, they'll sell more books and documentaries. Um, we know for sure that there are people who have family members who run major parts of the industry. Um, and while uh, you know while they're out being a mouthpiece, you look to their um, you know parents and and they're they're the ones who own gigantic interests in uh, steering the general population away from foods made with genetically engineered ingredients because it, it affects their industry and their bottom line. So that's really the trick I think that people do really accept this stuff they understand that it works and I think, What will really make a difference is when we start to talk more about how genetic engineering can rescue the citrus industry, how genetic engineering can change uh, the lives of farmers in Bangladesh, where they're now consuming the uh, BT eggplant, where um, farmers who use cotton, like today with Dr. Herring in part one of today's episode, um, uh, how cotton revolutionized and made decreasing pesticide use and increasing the profits for individual farmers and that's all been backed up by peer review those stories really move the needle and uh, stick with those and I think with those people will be very likely to uh, embrace a technology that can be very helpful the next question comes from Oriole Oriole um, <laughs> I guess it's a it's like Oriole without the e on the end is the Cavendish banana considered a GMO? And, and no, I, and this is the problem with GMO as, as a term. I hate it. Um, I go with genetic engineering. It's not genetically engineered, meaning that the gene composition has not been affected by addition of a single gene or small suite of genes in the laboratory. Now, the Cavendish banana, as we heard back with uh, Pat Heslop-Harrison, I think in episode eight or seven, is... Um, it's a banana that has an extra set of chromosomes. So you can find wild diploid bananas. And diploid meaning you get a set from mom and a set from dad. The Cavendish banana is a triploid, which means it gets two sets from one parent and one set from the other. And because you're triploid, you don't make sterile seeds. The embryos in the seeds are um, are dead on arrival. So. Um, if you look at the uh, little tiny seeds in there, they just never developed. And that's because the embryo isn't uh, isn't viable. It has an extra set of chromosomes, not sure what to do with those um, in terms of the next generation. So, the, the, But the, still, the fruit develops. So this is a, a really important um, development in fruit. Seedless watermelons, the same way. You can make a triploid by crossing a diploid with a tetraploid. So you cross a one with two sets of chromosomes with one with four sets of chromosomes, and you get this fruit that now produces triploid seeds uh, in triploid material that uh, uh, that, uh, that 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 uh, has the extra chromosomes that keep that from being fertile. So um, it's not a GMO, not genetically engineered, but certainly a genetic freak. Ben says, Hi, Kevin. Do you have any advice on how to best explain the safety record of GMOs and uh, to those without a scientific background? And thanks. And I guess it goes back to a question I kind of already answered, is that is lead with your values. When you talk to somebody, say, what's important to you? What are you worried about? What are, what's important about you for you and your family about food and farming? So once you have that conversation, it's easy to go forward and then talk about the ways that the technology can be very positive to reinforce the things that you both agree on. You see, this is the way it works, is that you have to get on the same side as people before they're going to listen to you. You have to earn their trust. Uh, They're suspicious of anybody who says, this is great technology, you'll love it, just eat it, be quiet, shut up, right? We've seen that a million times. So the way that we change this is by talking about who we are and why we do what we do. Why is the technology important? How does the technology help us feed more people? How does the technology um, help the environment? How does the technology help farmers? And uh, when we start with those kinds of ideas about what our values are, what's important, then uh, convincing others that this technology is a tool in the toolbox, it's pretty easy. And maybe that's the other side of this too. You know, don't ever claim that this is a silver bullet that's out there to say, solve every problem in humankind history. Um, it's just another way to genetically change a plant. And it's just a way we can do it with more precision than we have in the past. So, you know, it's not magic. It's not the solution uh, to everything. But it certainly is one more tool that, uh, that people can use to solve problems. And that, that's a good way to, uh, to approach it. Um, let's see here. Next we have Desiree Stephanie. I have many allergies. I get concerned about GMO foods, afraid of blends with things. I may develop allergies too. What precautions are taken to uh, what precautions are taken in the development to make sure make it so developed GMO foods will not result in some of us being uh, totally unable to eat them if they are blended with things we are allergic to. Um, I get excited by foods and expand food options to eat, but what about the reverse? What if splicing leaves some of us unable to eat certain foods anymore? I think you really have two questions there. So the first question is uh, um, is, uh, what precautions are taken in in development? Um, It's very easy to test something for allergenicity. Uh, Simple skin tests on animals or on humans, well, humans are animals, I suppose, but they're very simple tests that can be done, uh, very simple predictions that can be done in silico. So you can use a computer to look for epitopes and molecule, well, uh, sequences, which will trigger allergenicity or antibody interaction if you um, uh, uh, just do computational tests of those proteins ahead of time. And in genetic engineering, we know exactly what we're installing into the plant. So, um, the chances of creating something that would cause allergenicity are pretty low. I mean, almost none. Could happen. But uh, almost zero. And uh, to um, raise that specter, I I don't get too nervous about that. Um, But it does say here that you... you, get excited but what if you have something like peanuts that are mixed in well then the trick is is really to be eating whole foods i mean staying away from processed foods that may contain small little wisps of um products that could cause allergenicity things like a little bit of peanut oil or peanut dust um i i totally get that um i know personally uh, I, I know I don't tear open a bag and dig in very often um, I'm uh, you know I eat a lot of fruits and vegetables you know fresh meats or whatever but uh, the main idea is is that uh, uh, understanding what causes problems for you and steering clear of it that, that's pretty straightforward uh, Hugo says is there work being done using GMOs to make crops manageable for given climate oh, manageable given climate change if so are there any projects you can talk about and i think there's a ton in this area you see so many plants that are being adapted to abiotic stress how they deal with changes in uh, in heat cold um, freezing uh, maybe really high incidence of high temperature drought um, flooding Uh, this is a huge area of science and we know a lot about genes that can help Unfortunately, there hasn't been much of this technology ever deployed. Part of that is because of the difficulty in getting plants uh, approved and, uh, and the very small markets that these would serve. Now, when I think about this, I think about a major problem that's happening, say, in the Pacific Northwest, where climate is changing, temperatures are shifting, and the trees that are adapted to that annual cycle of heat and cold Um, They uh, just aren't getting enough cold hours. And you see changes in tree populations that can't adapt fast enough to the rapid change in the temperature. And uh, this is a major problem because you're seeing uh, large-scale populations and forests uh, changing. And maybe this is a good place where these technologies could help us because you can't breed trees fast. The other place where we're seeing problems are even like here in my state. Uh, The temperatures are warm throughout the winter, and plants that require chilling before they'll flower, things like blueberries, um, uh, peaches, they're not getting enough chilling hours, and so farmers are seeing very poor fruit set when the spring and summer come along. So um, as we've been doing in Florida for a long time, breeders are trying to identify varieties that require very minimal chilling before they'll flower. And uh, th- right now in our peach breeding program and the blueberry breeding program, there's a huge range that's being evaluated for how many chilling hours it requires before it will flower and have a good fruit set. And what you see are that the varieties that we used to plant down south now are probably more fitting to be growing a little further north. And uh, the problem is we're trying to, re- to, to deal with the change that's happening year by year. With processes, development of new, you know, plants, new, new varieties, um, and that takes ten years, fifteen years, twenty years. So we're very slow to be able to respond to such challenges. I think this is the last one. Thomas, do you see the newly signed label? Uh, two more. Do you see the newly signed labeling law as a chance for public engagement and education on these genetic and the use of genetic engineering in our food supply? And how would you like to see it be implemented? And, you know, Thomas, I don't know. I, I hate this topic of labeling and for two reasons. And, and the outcome of this last labeling bill is probably the worst it could be. Um, and here's why. If you're going to label something, which, you know, people are, first of all, I'm, I'm against the idea in general. Because we should be labeling on the content, not on the process we should be labeling based upon the ingredients if an ingredient is dangerous if an ingredient could cause an allergy that's critical critical information for labels real estate And in this case we're simply taking up space that could convey real information that to convey information that people don't understand you call something genetically modified ingredients you know that uh, you know made with genetic engineering people don't know what that means so what what you what good is it? Now, the idea of... So, that's the first side. I think it's a total mess. Don't even go there to begin with. However, if you have to do it, do it in a very easy way and do it voluntarily. The grocery manufacturers could have taken the day that Vermont flipped on July 1 and said, we now will require some foods, of course, cheese is exempt, to say... Um, contains genetically engineered ingredients. If the whole food industry would have said, let's follow Vermont's standard voluntarily, and adopted Vermont's standard, now you don't need state-by-state laws because everything is already voluntarily labeled. And if people want a right to know, they know. Of course, those of us who are in the science know that it's not about a right to know. It's about scaring people away from food. Um, and that's exactly what they want. Now, the problem is with the labeling uh, uh, legislation that did pass is it's broad, it's ambiguous, and I don't know that it has any kind of uh, ability to enforce whether something is really GE or not. What's worse is that it's, it, the perception is that it has bypassed public trust by going with a QR code rather than simple wording. you know, The problem with this technology from the beginning and those who have been promoting it is that they haven't sought to earn the public's trust. And this looks just looks like more obfuscation. And I don't know what focus groups they were using who said that a QR code would be wonderful, but I don't know. It doesn't mean much to me. I didn't even know what the damn thing was until pretty recently. thought it was like a screwed up checkerboard or something. I don't know. So, so my feeling is is that this will solve nothing it's just making uh the issue more divisive i think you either do it in a smart voluntarily way a voluntary way or don't do it at all and the day we have to legislate protecting people from nothing is a really sad day um the last question i got i got from uh email I gotta find it here hang on you know it's you know it's live entertainment right when you digging around. Okay. Uh, I drive overnight and heard Jeffrey Smith trash you on Coast to Coast AM the other night. Can you sue them? How do you fight back against that? <laughs> um, I heard this too. Somebody told me on Twitter about it and I was able to obtain a copy of the discussion. And Yeah, good old Jeffy. Um, yeah, he said that I'm uh, he said, oh, Fulta, well, he's paid by Monsanto and Monsanto tells him what to say and how to say it. And then he went on to talk about how Roundup causes uh, suicides and obesity and all the other BS that he normally talks about to scare people. And of course, the Coast to Coast AM audience ate it up. Um, How do you respond? Well, I think you just let him go. Um, Let him have the validation of that audience. I mean, he was appearing on the show right between the story of the devil doll that came to life and uh, the... um, Uh, something about uh, about demons and um, i don't know maybe that's right where it belongs Um, if you're discussing the dangers of gmo amongst the stories of bigfoot ufos demons out-of-body experiences i think that's in the right place (laughs) so thank you very much for all of your questions i hope this was helpful and we'll do it again really soon so that's it for Talking Biotech Podcast today. My name is Kevin Fulta. Remember to share the science with others. Uh, lead with your values. Talk what's about. Talk about what's important to you and your family. And share that with other people when you talk about the good parts of the safest food supply in human history. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week.
3: Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a
0: wider audience with science.